Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Today, we're going to do a deep dive. I'm going to talk about occult narcissism in the church and society writ large, um, but specifically focusing on what it means as a Catholic. And um, I had a professor in university, an English professor, and he said to me, or to the class, writing an essay is like trying to put an octopus to bed. What did he mean by that? He meant that there are various parts that you've got to sort of fold together and make sure it's all neat and tidy before you put it to bed. An octopus having so many legs, it's all the moving parts of a, um, an essay was the analogy. It was a good analogy. He was a pretty good professor. In any event, we're going to talk about this topic of narcissistic occultism. And we are going to talk about the occult. But uh, before we do that, I want to recommend a certain uh, book that I actually did the narration for this audiobook. Um, this is called Slaying Dragons to the Rise of the Occult. What exorcists and former occultists want you to know. The book is available on Amazon. And you can actually listen to the audiobook presently on Spotify, other places. It's not quite an audible yet for some reason. I don't think it's been approved yet for whatever reason. But anyway, it's on Spotify. Most of you have Spotify. If you're someone who uses Spotify, you can listen to audiobooks. And please do, because what happens is, is the sort of the more you listen to the book, um, the, the more, uh, once you listen to a certain percentage of it, I think it's like 30%, the author actually gets the, or the person who put it up there, gets the actual cost of what the audiobook is. So support an independent Catholic author, Charles Franny. He just did release another book. I'm sure I'll have him on soon about that. In any case, in this notion of the occult, we're not going to focus ourselves, we're not going to focus for this conversation on the extremely salacious elements. I know everyone wants to hear about the weird witchy rituals and things like that, but it's actually a bigger problem than that because very few people who are into occult, which is synonymous with New Age, Kabbalah, Masonry, all these, you know, secretive Gnostic ideas. Uh, in a sense, the weird ritualistic part isn't even really the biggest problem. Those are really dangerous things that people do and they're going to become demonized and so forth, and that's a problem. But the... The occultists themselves, the Gnostics, the, 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 the Kabbalistic Jews, the, the Masonic whatever, they want, you to, they want to discredit the idea that they're a part of this grand conspiracy by focusing on the ridiculousness of these claims. So we're not going to focus on those. Instead, we're going to focus on the general spread of occultism in the minds and hearts of so many people today, specifically as Catholics, and how we've really seen that play out in the post-Second Vatican Council spirit. And before we continue, um, I'd like to introduce to you, oh, wrong screen there, um, an initiative made by a good traditional Catholic businessman called Ora et Colora. Ora et Colora is a coloring experience that is catechetical and it takes you through the lives of the great saints. You can see here these beautiful images. It's like painting stained glass. And uh, it is more than just a coloring book. It is, as I said, a a catechetical experience that brings you through the beauty of Catholic literature and Catholic history. I recommend everybody check this out for both young and old. You can find the link for this in the description of this video. Thank you to Aura et Calora for sponsoring this video. And last thing that I will talk about here before we get going is the Canadian Martyrs Men's Conference, which is happening in three weeks. There's still time to get tickets. There's still time to get, book your hotel and so forth. Very affordable. February 16th and 17th. 16th is the sort of night before the conference itself is on the 17th. 
Check out the links in the description of this podcast for that. Father Michelion is their keynote speaker. Father Stannis is giving a talk. Tim Flanders from 1 Peter 5, meaning a Catholic, and myself. And despite the fact that I'm going to be talking, I promise you'll enjoy yourself. It really is a unique experience. Only traditional Catholic men's conference in North America. You don't want to miss it. Last year, we had a blast. This year, it's bigger and better. We've got a beautiful surprise for the beginning of the conference, which you're not going to want to miss. All right. So what about this occultism? Well, let's break this down for a second. You see, all heresies, every single heresy that's ever been established, whether it be uh, something from the heart of the church, like a Catholic leaving and starting some heresy, or whether it be something from outside the church that plays on Christian truths and attracts people away, all of these ultimately are Luciferian. And what do we mean by that? Well, Lucifer, you know, Satan, what is the first thing that we know that Lucifer does? He's created as an angel, he's very high and very proximate to God. And what is his famous line? His famous line is, I will not serve. Now, this is directed towards God, non serviam, I will not serve God. And why won't he serve? He won't serve because he actually believes himself to be worthy of adulation as if he were God. He believes himself to be worthy of praise and glory and honor as if he himself is the divine being uh, who is on par with God. This is the basic Luciferian psychology. Before Christianity, this, this understanding of the risk and the danger of this sort of self-worship was understood by the great ancient wise men and thinkers, the sages, of, especially of the Greeks. And they had this myth of narcissists. This is where we get the word narcissistic. And the story of Narcissus essentially is as follows. I'm just going to give a quick one-minute overview here. Um, this is a figure in this Greek mythology named Narcissus. And essentially, he sees a reflection of himself in a reflecting pool, and he becomes enamored with his own reflection. And in fact, he is extremely beautiful. He's an extremely beautiful, handsome person. And there's an element of homosexuality as well, because both men and women are physically and romantically attracted to him. Um there's much more to the story than that, but he can't be talked out of his narcissism, his self-worship. He can't be talked out of his uh, ridiculous form of self-worship, and that sort of becomes the curse of him in the end. And like all Greek myths, his folly ends up destroying him, and that's a whole other uh, part of the story. Um, and that's what happens to narcissists today as well. So a narcissist is somebody who, in essence, believes they're God. And that's not something you're going to get in the psychological textbooks, but here's why I say that. Whenever somebody puts themselves at the center of everything, they have to replace God. As St. Augustine tells us, God is more proximate to our souls, to ourselves, than we are to ourselves. He is the sustainer of our being. He is both internal and external to us. You can understand this motif if you read the Confessions by St. Augustine, which I recommend highly. I've read it through it four or five times. And... This is something where you find a partial truth of that in the New Age spirituality of our day. One of the great sages, well, pseudo-sages of our day is a man named Eckhart Tolle. And he's someone who's very heralded by, you know, sort of well-meaning, well but people who are just looking for spirituality. He's kind of that Oprah, Oprah prophet kind of thing. And um, the whole crux of the sort of Eckhart Tolle New Age spiritualism is that... Um, True love is found in the fullness of yourself. That's basically what it is. And someone who follows this, even if they don't mean to, because I'm not saying that people are just 
trying to be evil or whatever. Um, but this idea that the fullness of love, which we know as Catholics is found on the cross, okay? The idea that the fullness of love is found when we see ourselves fully or ourselves and another or things like that, this is a partial truth. This is half of the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So people will look to this and say, well, really what this teaching from the Bible is, is it's telling us that we love our neighbors because we see ourselves in them. So loving ourselves is really the same as loving our neighbors. This is completely consistent with Christian teaching, but it's not because it's only half of it. We love our neighbors as ourselves in the context of number one, we love the Lord with all our heart, and we only love ourselves insofar as the image of God is alive in us. And I say alive, because there's a difference there. We are made in the image of God, but we know as Catholics that the Holy Trinity, the fullness of the three persons of God, only lives within our soul when we live in a state of grace, which for that is required that we are baptized, of course, but also that we attend the sacraments and that we confess all our known mortal sins. Um, therefore, in order to love our neighbor as ourselves, meaning to love which is divine in another, the divine has to be alive within us through sanctifying grace. Otherwise, we are loving uh, the creature without the creator. And if we believe that we're loving that person because we see ourselves in them and we are not living in continuity with the creator, then what we've done is we've divinized ourselves as the deity that lives within another. And this is where we get this reality of sort of self-worship. It's a very tricky problem, um, which is why it's so attractive to so many people. And this is the heart of occultism. Occultism is not the flash in the pan, you know, parlor tricks of demonic rituals that people think it is. That happens, and those people are behind a lot of this, of course. But just like with Freemasonry, people focus so much on you know, what do the Freemasons do in their lodges? Well, they do very egregious things, and that's a, it's a terrible thing um, when they get to the highest levels. Um, but what Freemasonry is, is liberalism. It's the idea of conduct over creed. Thank you to Charles Coulomb for hammering that home on the Off the Menu podcast. By the way, Off the Menu with Charles Coulomb and Vincent Frankini of Tumblr House is, I mean, if I have a favorite two or three podcasts. It's in the top two or three. I love that show very much. So bravo, gentlemen, for doing that for so long. It's such a breath of fresh air every Monday to find a new download of that. In any event, um, not everyone has to be involved in masonry in order to be a mason in the psychological or spiritual sense. If you believe that all that matters is someone else is a good person and that all good people go to heaven, you're a mason. That's what you are philosophically. Because what is a Mason? A Mason is a liberal. The secret of nature of Masonry contains with it many diabolical things, which are necessary for the propagation thereof, because they take oaths. They, you know, when someone gets to the point where they're initiated to actually find out the various things about the highest levels of Masonry, they themselves have had to commit very grave sins and are essentially trapped because um, they could be blackmailed, basically. There's a, there's a practical element to it as well. Um, uh, but the, the main problem is the philosophy of masonry, which is imbibed in the constitution of the French Revolution. It's imbibed into the classic liberal ideas of the United States, although the United States is kind of a hodgepodge. Um, and it's basically the, the, um, it's the, it's the philosophy of the modern left and of conservatism, because conservatism in our day 
is really not much more than classic liberalism, although the conservatives are, generally speaking, classic liberals, and the leftists are very much Marxists, and classic liberalism to a leftist seems like right-wingism, although it's not, but that's another conversation for another day. This is analogous to occultism. You see, again, there are weird occultic groups out there. There are Kabbalistic strange cults. There are New Age strange cults. There's weird spiritualism guru things. And when you get into those, yeah, they're going to start getting into the various deities and, 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 and very religious spiritual practices, which does bring them into a form of demonism. Um, but there's a, a line in the book, The Screwtape Letters. I recommend that book highly. In fact, I recommend the audiobook over the written book and the recording done by Joss Ackland. If there are any uh, Mighty Ducks film series fans out there for the, for the millennials who saw that as a kid, um, he, the, Joss Ackland is Hans. He was the, uh, the old sage, the old Eastern, Eastern European hockey guru, so to speak. Not guru in the New Age sense, but anyway, uh, who trained um, Emilio Estevez and, and sort of was his childhood mentor. And, uh, but he's a wonderful actor and wonderful voice actor, and he narrated the Screwtape Letters. And one of the lines in the Screwtape Letters where the demon, the, the senior demon is tempting the junior demon, and he expre expresses to his very zealous protege that there's no sense in getting a man to commit murder when cards will do. What he means is, um, don't worry about getting a person to commit these egregious sins, um, which actually has a risk to it for the devils, which I'll explain in a second, but instead, get the person to just become entrapped into a bad habit that will damn their soul over time. And this goes back to the analogy where we hear about the frog and water. If you have a frog and you toss him into boiling water, he tries to get out. If you put a frog in lukewarm water and turn the thing on slowly, he just dies. And he doesn't try to get out because he just dies slowly. He's asphyxiated, so to speak. In fact, if you read this book, The Rise of the Occult by Charles Frawney, um, you'll find that those who get out of occultism usually end up getting out because they start getting into the deep weird stuff and they see the devil and they don't want that. Whereas those who just stay on the surface, they just go to the yoga ashrams or whatever. They just, you know, dabble in the Oprah spirituality. They just kind of stay on the surface. They just stay in the realm of sort of the psychological occultism and they don't get into the demonological, if that's a word, uh, realm of it. So they don't really see the devil. And so the real danger in this occultism is really the same danger that is in narcissism. They're really, in a sense, almost synonymous. I would say uh, not all narcissists are in the occult, but all people who dabble in occult spiritualities, philosophies, and so forth are necessarily dabbling in narcissism. It's like that old syllogism from Aristotle, all men are mortals, not all mortals are men. <clears throat> um, in any case, when someone gets imbibed with this narcissistic occultism, as I said at the outset, they replace God with themselves, even if they don't do it explicitly. And this is at the heart of modern Catholic spirituality. The reality is, is that if you gave most, even mass-going Catholics who are of the general conservative sphere, if you gave them uh, something from one of these pseudo-prophets of the sort of Christian occult New Ageism, and you gave them a bunch of their statements, 
they probably wouldn't be offended by them. They definitely wouldn't call them heretical, even though they are. And why is that? Because religion in the modern church has become a narcissistic Catholicism. It has imbibed the occult spiritualism in a very watered down, a very acceptable way where it's not explicitly anti-Catholic, but the psychological trajectory of it is occult and narcissistic. And here's why. The main thing I want to talk about right now, the main thing I want to talk about right now, sorry for that notification that came up, is actually the liturgy. And here's what I mean by that. You see, a family member of mine from Italy was visiting uh, around Canadian Thanksgiving, so in October. We were talking about mass. Not too much. It wasn't like I brought up religion crazy at Thanksgiving dinner. It wasn't one of those Thanksgiving stories. I try to avoid those. And uh, they were just asking about, well, and, you know, I was just saying we go to church, we go to the Latin mass. And, and uh, she said to me in Italian, she said, oh, I remember hearing about that from my grandparents or whatever. When the, when the priest had his back to the people. That was what the person had. And this was not a statement of ill will. I think this wasn't to someone who was being uh, cantankerous. It was just a, a comment, a passing remark. And I kind of laughed to myself and chuckled. And I didn't go into it. And I wanted to say something like, no, <laughs> uh, he's facing the people with God. Or sorry, he's facing God with the people. Um, and I just had a little Freudian slip there speaking of narcissism. And that's contrasted from the traditional liturgy with the modern liturgy where the priest himself faces the people. And what is the message of that? Well, yes, it's that he has his back towards God, but more egregiously, I would say, is he's facing God with the people. He's facing the people. I can't even say this right. He's facing the people with God. What? Because the priest acts in persona Christi. The priest is there as a minister of Christ and all of, his, all of his sacerdotal, his priestly power is Christ's power, not his own. He's a, human, he's a human being. He's a mere mortal. He doesn't have special superpowers. So all that happens in the sacerdotal function and the priestly functions, whether it be the sacraments, whether it be uh, blessings, sacramentals, these sorts of things, the power is linked to the power that is in Christ and that is uh, let's use an, a word here without making a theological mistake. You know, Christ is sort of acting through the priest as a conduit, if that makes sense. This is why it doesn't matter if a priest is uh, a bad man. If he validly does a sacrament, the sacrament's valid. It's not his power, it's Christ's power. Okay, so the psychological manipulation of the faithful for the last 50 or 60 years is that the, and you can't avoid this. It is impossible to avoid this at the Novus Ordo. Obviously, if you go one time for a reason of charity, you know, wedding or something like that. But if you attend the Novus Ordo, and I want to just say quickly here, stop bringing up the Unicorn Novus Ordo. The Unicorn Novus Ordo is when it looks like the Latin Mass. It is the exception that proves the rule. I recommend everybody read a book by Dr. Kwasniewski. I narrated it as well. It's called Good Music, Sacred Music, and Silence. And he shows that we can actually see objectively speaking, what is good and bad music, what is sacred and non-sacred music, because of the general traits that are demonstrated by those who listen to the music. So if you turn on certain music, in 9 out of 10 people, it's going to 
elicit a feeling of moving their hips. Whereas other music in nine of 10 people, like no one's ever going to hear Gregorian chant and say, I should probably move my hips now. No one's ever going to hear uh, polyphony by Palestrina and say, I'd like to, 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 to twerk or do a crunk, whatever the heck these stupid dances are called. Um, whereas if you put on a certain style of music, whether it be a syncopated rock and roll or syncopated hip hop beat, there is a certain appetite that is infallibly titillated by these um, rhythms and beats and so on and so forth. And it can't be otherwise because objectively music has a character. This is why it's impossible for certain music to be acceptable to listen to for pleasure. And I know that's going to not make me some friends, but it is what it is. Point being, the Novus Ordo, 9.9 times out of 10, is celebrated in the narcissistic sense. It is celebrated in the sense where the priest, the priest is the narcissistic minister in the Novus Ordo. And here's what I mean by that. And again, people are going to say my priest is not a narcissist. I'm saying this is the perception that is impossible to avoid of the faithful. And it is very likely this will manifest itself in the priest if he's not careful. And it's almost always what happens, even if not always. The exception proves the rule. The priest knows that he acts in the person of Christ. So the reason why in the old liturgy, whether it's East or West, you face away from the people in the sense that you face God with the people is so that the people are not tempted to look at you and you are not tempted to conflate them looking at you with them looking at Christ. The priest who faces the people during a modern liturgy, psychologically, it is almost impossible to avoid a temptation towards a self-worship because the people are there to worship Christ. You are standing in the person of Christ and they're looking at you. Think about that for a second. They're looking at you. They conflate you with Christ. What does that mean? It means you, in the psychological sense, in the minds of the people, are God. This is a very, very big problem. This is remedied with the old liturgies where you disappear. The vestments of the old liturgies, the chasuble for one. If you notice a chasuble, you have a nicely decorated altar and you have a nice chasuble, if you have some good um, you know, ladies taking care of the flowers and decorations of your parish, you'll actually find that the chasuble, that very uh, stiff robe that they wear that, that doesn't fold very easily, there's a purpose to that. It's because when the priest is up there, he'll blend in. He'll blend in as if he's a part of the sort of accoutrement of the decoration of the altar because you're supposed to focus on the altar, not Christ. It's altar and on Christ, not on the priest. But when he turns around, no matter what he's wearing, it's almost impossible to focus on him. him. And, for example, um, when the priest does the sermon, that's not technically part of the Mass. That's a very important distinction to be made. That's not technically part of the Mass. It's part of, it's liturgical, but it's not part of the actual sacrifice, which is why it can or can it can be omitted or it can be said. And this is why during a traditional ceremony, traditional liturgy, um, the priest will do the announcements and things like that during the sermon, because that's not the time of the s s uh, sacred sacrificial nature of the liturgy. It's a stepping outside. 
And in that place, it's okay to look at the priest because it's clear that we're looking at a teacher. He's not offering us the sacrifice there. He's not acting as Christ on the, on the, on the cross there. He's preaching to us the truths of the faith in the sense that he is a teacher. In the liturgy, when it's actually happening in the actual holy sacrifice of the Mass, when the priest is facing us, it is impossible. It is impossible to avoid a cult of worship around the priest. And that is what we see in the Novus Ordo. Think about it for a second. There are, I don't know, almost 800 priests in the Society of St. Pius X, 600 or so in the Fraternity of St. Peter, 400 in the Institute, I don't know, whatever. There's a couple thousand traditional priests on earth right now. Maybe I'm exa over-exaggerating, but there's a couple thousand, let's call it, priests on earth. There are very few traditional Catholic priests who are celebrities. The only one I can really think of in the sense that he's kind of known in the mainstream would be Father Ripperger. And why is that? It's just because Father Ripperger talks about demons. He's extremely intelligent. I'm just saying he talks about demons and demons, you know, it's like in news that if it bleeds, it leads. You know, people are interested in the topic. But think about the quintessential Vatican II priest. If you were to think about the archetype of the Vatican II priest, the man who is everything that the new church wants, what is he? He's charismatic. He's handsome. He's funny. He's a stage performer. He has a nice voice. He uh, makes jokes. The quintessential Vatican II priest is a performer. He's a celebrity. And this is why at these sort of Novus Ordo conferences all over the world, there's these continual, there's basically these hot ticket items, these, these, you know, the kind of the same way people line up to see Taylor Swift, God help them if they think that she has any talent, they line up to see Taylor Swift coming into their city in a similar way, you know, when, you know, Father so-and-so, the cool, hip, awesome, funny, handsome social media Catholic priest in the Novus Ordo, they line up to see him. Why? Because there's a cult of self, there's a cult of, 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 of man worship that has developed around this priest. And do you think that that priest is going to be able to avoid the pits of narcissism? It's very difficult. I'm not saying he will infallibly develop narcissistic tendencies, but it's going to be very difficult for him to not develop those tendencies. Okay. And this is why, um, the faithful, this is one of the reasons why the faithful who attend the Novus Ordo for years and years and years, even if they're conservative, if you really press them on certain dogmas, they will become very squeamish, if not deny them outright. And I've seen this time and time again. And the major dogma is the idea that there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church. And why is that? Because they have been imbibed with this humanistic, occultist, narcissistic belief that there is this inherent divine dignity in all human persons uh, that goes beyond what we understand by the true dignity of someone who has the character of God living in their souls. They've been imbibed with this understanding that man ought to be worshipped because when they go to liturgy, not only is the priest facing them, but the psychological element that is so destructive is that God is facing them 
with the priest. Traditionally, we face God with the priest, and therefore it's clear that our object of adoration is God. In the New Liturgy, the priest faces the people with God, which psychologically imbibes into the people that the people are the object of the worship of God. God worships the people with the priest. This is the Luciferian and Satanic reversal of the traditional psychological understanding of liturgy. People will say things like, well, you know, in the early church, there were some, um, you know, liturgies, we found some records, they faced the people, whatever. That's fine. The Holy Ghost got rid of that, though. There's a reason why that changed. Not to say that any of the church fathers and things like that were narcissists. Um, but the reason is, is that over time, they understood the psychological triggers of these spiritual and psychological disorders, and therefore they put in these safeguards to make sure that would never happen. They did it so they could avoid the cult of personality. This is why in traditional orders, especially in the Society of St. Pius X, um, your favorite priest will be transferred when you're least expecting it. Why? So that the priest will not become attached to the comforts of his post, and so that you will not become attached to the man in place of Christ. This is why every three years in the SSPX, every three years, it's kind of like signing a contract in the NFL. You know, you sign a three-year contract and then you got to renegotiate. You either get traded, you get cut, or you get signed again. Every three years, it's you're either going to get moved or you get an extension of three years. And then every three years later, the same thing happens. And then when you least expect it, you could be gone. And it's actually very hard. It's very hard because you come to love these priests you come to love, I mean, they become like members of the family. You know, some of the priests, you know, um, who we've gotten to know as a family, when they left, you know, it was very difficult because we loved them so much. We loved them as fathers. They were just unbelievable men, and they did such amazing things for our family and for our community that, you know, there's, there's, there's no monetary or material gift possible that could repay them for the beautiful things that they did. And when they left, it hurt very much. Um, but that was necessary uh, because... They needed to go somewhere else for their sake and for our sake so that never could we confuse the creature with the creator. All of these things are fixed and worked out in the traditional liturgy and the traditional Catholic faith. This is not to say that a Catholic priest of the traditional rites cannot become a narcissist. Everyone can fall into sin. That's, that's not the point. But the point is that the safeguards are there so that in the general sense, we are, we are guarded against these disorders. Whereas in the new liturgy, this is the norm. I want to bring it back full circle just to summarize from the beginning. At the beginning of this episode, I talked about how there's an occultic narcissism that is inherent in our society and in the church. And I've talked about the church, and I want to just talk quickly about the society. Funny enough, my actual camera for this show is my iPhone um, because Apple products, you can use the phones and the computers wirelessly together like a thing. And why would I spend all this money on an expensive camera when the phone looks just like an expensive camera? Um, but... We live in the kingdom of narcissism. We live in the kingdom of narcissism. And we stare at ourselves constantly. We stare at ourselves constantly. We are looking at ourselves all the time. We put our pictures on social media and so forth. And this is why, um, personally, I think the most dangerous social medias are TikTok and Instagram, basically. Twitter, I mean, all social medias can be dangerous, but Twitter is more for the sharing of information and you're probably going to fall into other sins on there if you're not careful, you know, just being a jerk or whatever. But it's not really a social media outlet that is geared towards the love of your own face. 
like Narcissus, right? The narcissist, the, 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 the progenitor of narcissism in the Greek myths. He fell in love with his own face. Whereas TikTok and, and, um, TikTok and, uh, and what's it? Instagram, Insta vanity, or one of our priests calls it. Um, it's impossible to avoid that. This is why people today, um, it is anathema in the general culture for you to ever criticize someone who says they're doing something for themselves or in the name of love. We see this with the rainbow movement. Love is love. That means nothing. That's like saying blue is blue. Water is water. Air is air. Math is math. A pen is a pen. Oh, you must be a philosopher. It means nothing. But you cannot dare criticize the rainbow movement if you work for any general corporation or in any government institution because the rainbow movement represents the disordered self-love that everyone is imbibed with, but it is so strong within the rainbow movement that they adore themselves so much that they must be sexually active with those who look exactly like them, therefore members of the same sex. Um, and one of the characteristics of a narcissist, and this is moved to our next portion here, one of the main characteristics, uh, of course they're very insecure, which is why they need the self-love, but they also cannot ever stand or withstand any criticism. When you criticize them, they must necessarily seek to destroy you because they view themselves as God. So they view you as a heretic. This is one thing that I say kind of tongue in cheek, but the leftists understand politics and Catholic morality more than the conservatives. Why? In true, you know, sort of old school Catholic politics, heresy is illegal because heresy is actually worse than murder because Christ tells us that fear not him who can kill the body, but fear him who can kill the soul. Meaning that the death of the body is nothing. The death of the body is just the death of the body. I mean, if you're in a state of grace, you hit by a car. I mean, some people are going to be sad, but if they understand the faith, like they're going to be really happy about it because you're gone to heaven. And like, isn't that great? That's the point. That's you won. You win. If that happens to you. Whereas if you become a heretic, you've killed your soul. This is why historically um, the rainbow lifestyle was illegal because it necessarily must propagate. It necessarily must create offspring, which can only do through propagation and propaganda. And heresy was illegal and could be punished by crimes uh, as a crime. And why is that? Because it was worse than murder. Someone who kills your body, if you're in a state of grace, in an ultimate sense, this sounds kind of macabre, but is doing you a favor. Somebody who kills your soul through heresy, he is a spiritual murderer. And he's worse than a physical murderer. The man who kills people physically is an egregious criminal. The man who kills the souls and intellects of people will be descended to the depths of hell to a degree and to a level of punishment that is reserved for the worst and most heinous of individuals. This is why Martin Luther is surely rotting away in the depths of hell. The left understands this because the left is the reversal. The left, the left, the left believes that every single person is this mini God. And therefore anyone who criticizes God must necessarily be extinguished. The problem is that their God is themselves, which means their God is ultimately Satan. So that's wrong. 
This is why it drives me nuts when conservatives will say things like, you know, I'm a free speech absolutist, uh, you know, never censorship. Well, you can never censor the truth. You can never censor, you can never uh, tell people to shut up when they're telling the truth. That's fine because the truth will set you free. Um, but it, as a Catholic, you must embrace censorship. It's called the Index of Forbidden Books. You must embrace um, uh, criminal offenses for those who corrupt the minds of children, for example, because that's more important than corrupting their bodies. Anyway, and if you look at what has happened in the church since the Second Vatican Council, you think cancellation started in the last 10 years, 20 years in corporations and politics? No, it started in the church. After the Second Vatican Council, look what they did to a man like Archbishop Lefebvre. All he did was tell the truth and stand for the faith that was taught to him. But the narcissistic, occultist trajectory, the, the self-love, the satanic love of self and love of man as God, that was the spirit of the council permeating throughout the ages, standing in opposition to this was tantamount to a sin against the Holy Ghost because they conflated the will of man with the will of God. And therefore, anyone who stood in the way of their narcissistic, humanistic occultism, which was inculcated in a liturgy where God and priest adore man, in contrast to man adoring God with priest, this man had to be extinguished. And you cannot extinguish Archbishop Lefebvre by arguments. They've tried. The, legal, the legalists and the Pharisees and the idiot blowhards on podcasts on YouTube have tried to do that and they failed. The SSPX just continues to increase. Only fools get fooled by their remarks and those fools necessarily must themselves suffer from these narcissistic modernist, modernist tendencies. And they all do when you, when you talk to them. Um, you can't extinguish Archbishop Lefebvre by argument. This is why the Society of St. Pius X doesn't go away. Because every time they come for a doctrinal discussion with Rome, they get to an impasse where the SSPX says, here is the doctrine of the church forever. Here's what you're telling us to believe. Make the two things fit. And they can't because one is Catholic. One is Catholic and one is narcissistic and humanist and occultist. It's just a fact. This is why the only way they could get rid of the Archbishop Lefebvre problem was to go nuclear. It's uh, John Paul II acted towards Archbishop Lefebvre in the same way that the uh, idiot in charge of my country, Justin Trudeau, acted towards the truckers. Um, he used the power of the law by the letter without the spirit, which is what's that's called being a Pharisee. Recently in Canada, the use of the Emergencies Act against those truckers, it was deemed unjustified by a federal court. After further reflection, the same thing has happened with Archbishop Lefebvre. The nuclear bomb of excommunication comes down and everyone gets scared, just like everyone gets scared when the Emergencies Act comes down. And then after the dust settles, it didn't take very long. It took actually weeks and months in the case of Archbishop Lefebvre for the greatest theological canonical minds in the church, even publicly, to say, well, yeah, Archbishop Lefebvre really wasn't schismatic. And now today, it's very hard to find a, a theologian or a canon lawyer worth his salt. They still exist, but it's very hard to find one worth his salt who will tell you that um, taking the letter and the spirit together, which you must do, because the spirit, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. Taking them both together, it's very clear that the excommunication of Archbishop Lefebvre was not justified. But it was the only thing that they could do. 
because you can't argue away the truth. You have to destroy it. You have to seek to kill it. This is why Christ says, but ultimately you can't in the long run, which is why traditionalism continues to thrive, even in the face of persecution, because you put a lamp under a bushel and it can't stand there forever. The light will shine through. This is why as the popes have progressed from the council now culminating with the incarnation of modernism, who is Pope Francis, um, he doesn't even attempt, he doesn't even attempt to argue using some sort of conservative-ish theology against traditionalism. He just destroys traditionalism. He just launches bomb after bomb, and he just puts out heresies like what's in Fiducia Supplicants and so forth, and he just launches bomb after bomb. Just get rid of the trads. Just kill them. They're, they're, and he calls them names. Right? He calls them mentally ill, backwardists. This is what narcissists do as well. This is what Justin Trudeau does, who's a narcissist par excellence. This is what he does in our country. This is what Joe Biden does. And you label pro-lifers as domestic terrorists. You just do it. You just There's no arguing against pro-life position because it's the only reasonable position. So what do you do? You're a bigot. You're a racist. You're whatever. There's no arguing against traditionalism because it's true. Traditionalism is just Catholicism. This modernist Novosorditism is narcissistic uh, humanist religion. It isn't Catholicism in the sense that it's philosophically completely bankrupt. So what do you do? Well, you're just rigid. You're just an anti-Semite. You're just a backwardist. You're just mentally ill. You're just a schismatic. It's no different than the left. And this, and this is one of the most controversial things I'll say. This is this uh, this narcissistic, humanistic, occultist, uh, psychological disordered religion. This is conservative Catholicism as well. It's just conservative Catholicism does a good job of hiding it. So when you look into the mainstream, um, sort of conservative outlets, bring up traditionalism. Bring you know you, you talk about the existence of God. You talk about the doctrines for Mary. You talk about you know Protestants as being false. These guys are great. These apologists they'll they'll dismantle that bring up traditionalism, and immediately they will become leftists. They'll resort to name-calling, they'll resort to gaslighting, they'll resort to duplicity, and they'll resort to historical ignorance. I remember one time watching, and I won't name him because it's annoying to name these guys because they're just relentless in their attacks, but I was watching one of these guys on a podcast, and he was expressing why he liked going to the Eastern Liturgy, and he said because the Eastern Liturgy best... Um, he said in, in one sentence... He respected the traditional rite, but he preferred the Eastern liturgy because he said it, it, it seemed to best inculcate the call of Sacrosanctum Concilium, the documented liturgy from the council, for the active participation of the lady. Right away, I knew this man had no idea what he was talking about, but this is an extremely famous conservative Catholic apologist. And why did I know that? Because Sacrosanctum Concilium was about the Roman rite. It's not about the Byzantines. It's also a condemnation of 20 centuries of Catholic liturgy because the insinuation is that for 20 centuries, the lady never participated in the liturgy actively and that magically with this surprise of the Holy Ghost in a document at the Second Vatican Council, finally, the church teaching on the liturgy was fully actualized. This is a, a, an egregious statement because it really does strike at the indefectibility of the church in many ways. This is what these Second Vatican Council apologists don't even realize. Is that by suggesting that there were deficiencies 
that had to be addressed in the Second Vatican Council. What they're saying is that the church was in, 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 in theological darkness for 2,000 years. They're making arguments against Catholicism that are probably stronger than the Mormons. The Mormons talk about the sort of great apostasy and the 300 years were lost. They're making arguments of the same magnitude. They're saying that for 2,000 years, not just 300, for 2,000 years, there are major problems that had to be addressed by some special revelation from God. Any event, I didn't go on too many tangents here. This is getting a little bit long, 45 minutes. But I hope what I'm saying makes sense. Last thing I'll say, one of the things you have to realize is that trying to argue with a narcissist is impossible. It's impossible. This is why it's impossible to argue with the anti-traditionalist. Try, I've tried. It is, I've given up doing it. And the reason is, is because it is impossible. It is, it is not possible. It will never amount to anything. Why? Because when you attack the arguments of the conciliar narcissist, he will necessarily believe that you are attacking him as a person because he's conflated himself with God, at least psychologically, because that is the necessary outcome of going to a liturgy for decades and decades where God and the priest adore you. Therefore, you always get to an impasse in these conversations where eventually when you press hard enough, they just blurt out the word schismatic like a leftist blurts out the word racist. And I've found this myself as well, trying to talk to these people, both in my personal and, and professional life. They're also unwilling to learn. They will never. You know, most people who criticize trads have never read traditional Catholic theology. Never. Most traditionalists who are well-to-do, well-meaning, have read the majority of the post-conciliar texts and the conciliar texts, at least commentaries on them. Most of us were brought up reading John Paul II and Ratzinger because that was just the, the thing you were supposed to do. So we know it very well. So when we critique it, we critique it from a place of knowing what it is. Whereas those who critique traditionalism, you know, take Steubenville University. It's a great university in many ways. I don't know if it's changed since, since I looked into it a few years ago for a master. So if it has changed, mea culpa. I'm not saying it's the same. I'm just saying this was my experience when I was looking into it. I was looking at the master's program and one of the history courses, the history credits, the first semester was basically 19th centuries. The second semester was history in the 20th century of the church or after the council. I'm thinking, my goodness, what does that tell you? It tells you that they're equating the last 50 years uh, on par with the weight of 20 centuries of Catholicism. It's insane. There's no way, there's no way that someone who goes through a mainstream institution like that can understand traditional Catholicism unless they do their own personal study because that's just not what they're taught. So when you're talking to one of these people, I've had this many, many times, I'll say, hey, you have all these problems with uh, the society, with traditionalism. Why don't you read my book? Oh, I don't have time for that. Then we, I don't have time to talk to you then because you're an idiot. You're not of goodwill. It is impossible to argue with a narcissist. Narcissists feed off of misery. They feed off of you going crazy. This is why when you're a traditionalist trying to talk to one of these family members or whoever who are these big Novus Ordo apologists, they live in a world of circular reasoning and contradictions. And they know, even if just implicitly, that they're driving you crazy. 
which is why they're relentless with their comments until the point where you just have to walk away. And there's no dealing with them. It is impossible because they suffer from a spiritual and psychological disease which has been inculcated in them by this narcissistic spirit since the council. This is why even in the mainstream Catholic apologist world, uh, you'll see these men, they'll dip their toe in tradition, but they'll take it out real fast. Why is that? Because they know that they will be blacklisted from the speaking circuit. You look at all these big podcasters and sort of the mainstream Catholic world, they'll dip their toe in traditional. They'll definitely go to East because the East is where you're allowed to be a traditionalist without actually having to be a trad. It's a nice little cop-out. This isn't an indictment on the East. This is, this is just a cycle. This is a, a phenomenon we witness. They, don't, they, they tell you to go to the Novus Ordo and they go to the Byzantine liturgy. They get to have their tradition. They get to have their cake and eat it too. They get to have their tradition and call you a schismatic if you don't go to the Novus Ordo, even though they don't attend themselves. But if you take the traditionalist position, you will be blacklisted from any official speaking gigs in all bishops' conferences in the world. Kennedy Hall will never, ever be speaking at a Steubenville conference. Kennedy, not that I want to, but Kennedy Hall will never be speaking at a diocese. Never. It's never going to happen. It will never happen. doesn't matter if what I'm saying is true. doesn't matter if I'm not a heretic. doesn't matter if what I'm saying is just good Catholicism. Never. Because narcissists cannot stand criticism, and they must erase you. So those who are in mainstream Catholicism, in Catholic Inc., as I call it, once they start to feel the pressure from the narcissistic Novosordite spirit that has been inculcated in them and, the, and others over the decades, once they start to feel the heat, they will back out. And when they back out, they won't just back out, they'll go on the attack. Look what's happened with these Catholic podcasters who were friendly to tradition in the SSPX. When they backed out, they didn't just back out, they became vicious. Because that's what a narcissist must do. He must destroy his enemies because he views them as heretics against God because he views himself as God. It's very simple. All right. I've made a lot of friends with this podcast. As always, let me know what you think in the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.